freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. It's time to hear from the top Christian litigators in the nation who have come forward to tell us the truth and help us defend our faith. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Faith on trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano is in session. And welcome back to Faith on Trial, where we examine the influence of law and society on people of faith. I'm Deacon Mike Mano, host, and I'm joined here now by Gina No, our co-host. Uh, before we talk about the program, yeah, let's find out how you are doing today, Gina. I'm doing well. It's been a good week, and we're ready to have a really good show. I really enjoyed um, taking a look at uh, the issues that we have before us today. Quite a history. It, it is, it is. And we're going to talk with uh, Leah Patterson from First Liberty on a case that's been going on in Maine for some time now. It just keeps coming back uh, about whether uh, uh, the state can prohibit certain religious schools from receiving, uh, taking part in a school choice program. Uh, and this and is very timely because yeah. there's so many school or so many um, states in this year alone that have passed new laws that um, open up um, school choice and funding for students, then they can take their money to uh, religious schools. We're doing that in Iowa. We're education. starting that in Iowa. Yes. That's right. That's right. And there's a lot of people yeah. going the other way, but they're trying to uh, put a hold on that. And that case has already been up to the Supreme Court once, <laughs> and the state of Maine has lost. Uh, so we'll find out what they're uh, what they're getting at this time by uh, by trying to do something new, and then we have Andrea uh, is a Pichelli Bayer who is the legal analysis for EWTN, and she does other things. And she's going to be talking to us about the attacks on the sacrament of confession. There are two states right now, uh, Vermont and Delaware, that are entertaining legislation that would end the priest penitent relationship, which would require priests to testify, uh, and sometimes even to volunteer information that they heard in the confessional. And uh, that, obviously, we oppose. And uh, Andrea is going to tell us why we oppose that and what we're doing about it. But we want to start off with a prayer here. So, Gina, do you That's have a right. prayer? I do. I have a prayer for peace today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God of peace, bring your peace to our violent world Peace in the hearts of all men and women, and peace among the nations of this earth. Turn to your way of love those whose hearts and minds are consumed with hatred. Strengthen us all in hope, and give us the wisdom and the courage to work tirelessly for a world where true peace and love reign among the nations and in the hearts of all. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Gina. Uh, We will be right back in just a few minutes with Leah Patterson from First Liberty. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. We are back. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Catholic Radio, and we have with us Leah, Patter- Leah Patterson from First Liberty uh, with an update on a story that we've been covering for, I suppose, a couple of years now, Leah. Um, why don't we go back and start where this whole thing started with the Maine law, the state of Maine law. <laughs> well, it is good to be with you again. Um, Thank you. All right, so... The way that everything that's going on, I'll just dive right in. Um, Maine has one of the oldest school choice programs in the country, adopted back in the 1800s. And 
during most of that time, religious schools could participate in that program. You know, parents could choose to send their kids anywhere that worked best for them. And the law got changed in 1980, about about 1980, to prohibit the parents uh, living in the eligible school districts from sending their from using their tuition benefit at religious schools. So they could send it to a public school, they could send them to a private school, but they couldn't send it to a religious school. We challenged that law back in 2018, and the Supreme Court overruled it just last year. So as of that decision, which is in the Carson versus Macon case, the Supreme Court said that it is unconstitutional to exclude religious schools from participating in the school choice program because of their religious beliefs. Now, okay. now the Supreme Court has said that it's unconstitutional, and so Maine is just rolling over, right, and saying, go ahead and (laughs) you can do what you want. If only, if only. So, <laughs> All right, well, let's, well, let, let, let's look at the law. Let's look at how they're working at this uh, again so we can kind of get the bigger picture. Um, Maine has a law that if you are in a district, I guess a school district, where there is no um, high school, you can send your child to any school that you wish, and that district will pay for it. Does something like yes. that? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so now what they're saying, and they used to say that you could go to any school, and they tried to say we could go to any non-sectarian school, and uh, now Mm -hmm. they're saying the religious schools are out. But they did have a carve-out exception in the new law they passed. So the way that the the new law that they passed, um, they passed back in, in 2021. So that was about the time the Supreme Court decided to take up the Carson case. Mm-hmm. And what it did is it it changed some of the the legal obligations that attach to participating schools. And the, the way we're putting it is they basically put a poison pill in there. They put conditions on on participation in that program that violate our, our clients' religious beliefs. And, you know, that would be bad enough. But we you know, have public statements from, from the Attorney General, from the then Speaker of the House, that this was on purpose because of our specific client's particular religious beliefs. Because, you know, the plaintiffs in the Carson case, a couple of them attended this particular school. So, you know, the idea being, and these are the arguments that, that the state made before the Supreme Court, well, if these schools are disqualified anyway because they can't accept these conditions, well, then you shouldn't decide this case at all. So this is designed to stop the Supreme Court from from overturning the, the law in the first place, the the, the original um, sectarian exclusion. Okay, now the, that didn't work. The, okay, and here we are. I, I was going to ask you these poison pill uh, provisions uh, in the new law uh, that put conditions on your ability to use this law to send a child to another school. Uh, what were those conditions? Uh, and I guess I, we know now why they were attached. They were done so deliberately, but. Why, why did they attach those, uh, or what did they actually do, I guess? Sure. Okay, there's two pieces to this. The first piece is that the the portion of the law, so, so this is the educational non-discrimination requirements in, in the Maine Human Rights Act, and there used to be a religious exemption for all religious schools where to accommodate their religious beliefs, the provisions relating to sexual orientation and gender identity did not apply to religious schools. 
This law narrowed that religious exemption to only protect schools that do not participate in the tuition program. The second, and really the more well, important... Well, let me go, let me go back these, to the first one. What that would mean is that the schools that didn't partake in the program, didn't accept students on the basis of this program, it didn't bother them. Right. Right. So, the, so if they got out or moved out of the way, all those people it wouldn't have applied to anyway. Yeah, that's, as I understand it, that that's right. That, that sounds like what they did. All right. And what was the second one then? The second one was it added a religious non-discrimination provision to that law. So it said that a school that participates in the tuition program can't discriminate between different religious expressions. Okay, that's great for a public school, but a religious school has to be able to teach from their religious perspective. That's what makes it a religious school. So this law effectively prohibits religious schools like our client from teaching their faith at all. And if you go back to the statements from the Attorney General, you go back to the briefing in Carson, at the end of the day, their biggest issue with allowing religious schools to participate was that these religious schools teach their religion as true. Okay. And they and apparently the state of Maine does not condone that. Evidently not. Okay. All right, so now how much of this do you suppose was um, was aimed toward hiring, especially in hiring teachers? Because I know mm-hmm. the one thing that they did here, or I think they did, was they excluded single-sex schools from this. Yes, that's right. There is uh, Single-sex schools are not subject to, to virtually any of the requirements in this law. Okay. So how much of this then was looking at hiring, hiring teachers, hiring administrators, hiring counselors at these uh, sectarian schools? So during this, sort of a a long answer here, but during the Carson case, one of Mm -hmm. the arguments that the state made um, trying to, you know, come up with a reason why these schools would be disqualified anyway is to say that the employment non-discrimination law would apply to them if they accepted the money. That is not our interpretation of the statute, as you know, as, as we understand it. Um, and courts during the Carson case w- refused to decide that issue. And so right now, the employment issue is sort of a possibility that we're asking the court to clarify the law on, okay. but that's not the primary thrust of the case here. Okay. But would that not fall under the ministerial exception as well? Yes, it would, and that's our argument. Okay. Glad I thought of it for you. Go ahead. <laughs> Jeannie, you're kind of quiet out Leah, there. Leah, sounds... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah, Leah, it seems to me that um, from everything I've read... The attorney general in Maine has um, a, a, a directed beef or problem with this um, this particular school, BCS. Um, is that playing into this? And does he expect to be at the Supreme Court one more time to fight this legislation? And do we just continue to go in this catch-22 cycle with them? 
Well, I, I can't speak to what he's thinking, uh, I'm afraid. Um, I can tell you that the hostility that was expressed towards our clients' religious beliefs is constitutionally significant and is a big part of our argument. Okay, so now what are you asking the court to do now? The case is, I guess the original case has already been heard. Somewhat mooted, I suppose, because there was an amendment to the law that changes the, the law that was ruled on by the Supreme Court. So, well, I'm afraid mooted is a technical term, so I can't actually agree with that. Well, but uh, keep going. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's made it irrelevant, maybe, uh, because of the changes in the law. Uh, so the Supreme Court decision still is their decision, but it was based on another law. And the law has been changed somewhat. So now what, what position are you in now? You're back in the district court, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, we so, are. So are you trying to enforce the earlier Supreme Court decision, or are you trying, looking forward to the possibility of going back to the Supreme Court and having have them look at the whole thing anew? Well, the way this works is that this is a different lawsuit. Mm-hmm. It pre- proceeds separately. But the previous case provides a lot of the law that we'll be discussing in our arguments. Good. All right. And so as you're arguing this now, what are you asking the district court to do today? We're asking the district court to enter a preliminary injunction that protects this school from the state enforcing that law against it. So what we're asking for and what we hope is that the school would be able to participate in the program in the next school year while the case makes its way up. Okay, so some protection from the district court to allow things to play out until you can have the case fully heard. That's it. Okay, so what is the response back from the state? Well, the state's response will will come in due time. That has not happened yet. Oh, they haven't even responded yet? Well, the legal timeline for responding is a lot longer than a couple of days. Okay. All right. When, when was it filed? Maybe I didn't get the date down right. It was filed early Monday. Oh, early Monday. Okay. All right. So by Friday, we're not going to have anything. Right. Okay. Have you had any conversation with the state, any letters back and forth that may indicate uh, what they uh, might object to or what they might even agree to? No, I can't speak to that. Okay. All right. Um, It sounds to me like what is happening here is that this is uh, based on religious animus as opposed to solid law. That is our argument. Okay. Okay. I can't help but observe that perhaps um, Maine will continue this cycle. You know, as you argue this case, they'll come up with some other legislation to work around it to exclude BCS or other religious schools from accepting funds for the students. Um, Is there any way in this particular lawsuit that you can prevent that sort of activity? Well, the best way I can put it is we're doing all that we can. Okay. Sure, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, I, uh, and I've been, I've been through some of these things before, and yeah, there's a certain point you you just it's down there on paper. Read it. <laughs> That's all we can say. <laughs> Am I right? Leah, is there yeah. any other precedent set from, 
from other states uh, trying to do the same sort of things now that there's more of these um, uh, school choice programs coming into effect throughout the country? Well, I can tell you as a general matter that, you know, this law that Maine passed in anticipation of the Supreme Court decision was pointed out and kind of hailed by a lot of people as a roadmap for getting around the Supreme Court's strong decisions that that protect religious liberty, especially of parents and religious schools to participate equally in school choice programs. So there's, you know, I, I think it's fair to say there are a lot of people watching to see what happens here. And so the way this case goes could have broader impacts. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say because I've noticed myself, and, and of course we've had people from First Liberty and others on this program before, and this is one of the things that keeps coming up is that there is there seems to be anyway, in my view, a general animus against religious faith and religious teaching and a lot of things. You know, people living their faith uh, and and pushing other issues on these schools that they don't want to deal with because it falls outside their uh, body of beliefs. And so I think you're right. We're probably going to see a lot of this uh, in the future unless it's clipped right away. But I think people will still find ways to get around it. Well, you know, that's that's why we do what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, First Liberty is at firstliberty.org. And I take it that's a place our listeners can go to listen or to find out more about not only this case, but about all the other cases that you're dealing with. No, absolutely. FirstLiberty.org is the place to go for all your information needs. And if you need help. I think there's a place (laughs) if you need legal help. And, And what you do is pro bono. Yes, that is right. Our clients never get a bill. And that and that's why it's important to support uh, places like First Liberty. And so if there's a donate button on that page uh, where you can do that and you've got some spare change, I think it would be nice if uh, you were able to help them out a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, that that's how this is all paid for, I guess. All right, you got any other cases coming up in this general uh, genre that uh, we might uh, want to visit with about? Well, you know, um, there's there's always something. We're we're a busy bunch. Um, you, you can go to our website for for all of all of our cases going on. Um, you know, this is not really related to the same issue, but we you know we have a lot of cases of of people who are, are dealing with with employment discrimination because of their fate. You know, there's a, a Supreme Court mm-hmm. case that that we have that's coming up on April 18th about you know whether a, a postal worker can um, get religious accommodations to uh, not work on the Sabbath. And it's, it has a lot of, of implications and potential to, to do a lot of good for religious liberty in the workplace. Yeah, I know you are a very busy group over there because I keep getting all of your press releases, <laughs> and, and uh, they're pretty solid. I'd like to talk to you about them all at one time or another, but of course uh, we're just... Uh, Time prohibits us being able to do that, but I do appreciate that the work that you're doing, and uh, it's very needed. It's very needed today. We not only need prayers, but we need support for these organizations like First Liberty that fight the great fight for us, that stand up against uh, um, 
against the the animus of people who are fighting religion at every turn. They want to completely secularize society uh, so that no religious beliefs other than the government's beliefs can be tolerated. And that's where we find ourselves these days. Gina, do you have anything else? No, I, I I enjoy listening to this case. I imagine we'll hear more about it um, going forward, Leah. It sounds like you're on track to continue to fight that fight for the people of Maine. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and Leah, we had thought we had gotten rid of this case some time ago with the Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> but I, I guess I guess old cases never die. You know, and as we talk about these things. So Leah, Something good, like that. Yeah. Leah, you're in our prayers. Good luck with you. And I hope uh, you get a few extra bucks from uh, our little pitch here and uh, that you are successful in protecting these religious institutions. We want to thank you for today and uh, for what you do. Leah Patterson. Thank you very much. Council with very First good. Liberty. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we're going to take a break right now, and we will be right back in a few minutes with more Faith on Trial. And we are back, and we're joined by Andrea Pachati Bear, who is a legal uh, analysis for EWTN, and she does a couple other things that we're going to talk about, too. But, Andrea, welcome to our program today. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me on. Certainly. Appreciate it. Uh, you are a legal analyst for EWTN, but you do a couple of other things here. And I see from uh, the... Uh, uh, resume that was sent to me is that you're a consultant with the media and a media fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, and you're also director of something called the Conscience Project. Can you explain what they are uh, so that we know a little bit more about you and whether or not you can Absolutely. really hold a job? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and it's, it's one of those things. I'm also the mother of 10 so it's it's there's a, your full time job. Too. There's your full time <laughs> job. Yes. <laughs> on on the side, I try to put bread on the table. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 a great uh, number of groups that I'm affiliated with, and as you mentioned first, the Institute for Human Ecology is part of the Catholic University of America in Washington D.C., and it's it's kind of a, a center for interdisciplinary thought um, that that connects all the dots between theology, philosophy politics, um, to be able to offer both students at the university, at the undergraduate and graduate level, but also in the public square, an introduction to the deep Catholic intellectual tradition. And we're finding more and more um, that that's going to help through these troubled times that we are in, both um, at higher education, but also on important issues that are being grappled with in our lawmakers or just in our neighborhoods, communities, and even in the church. And then the other group is one that I'm the director of, and that's the Conscience Project. Um, And it's an organization that's committed to public education around important issues related to religious freedom and conscience rights, um, with a particular look at these important cases that are being decided in our courts. I'm a lawyer by trade. Um, I graduated from Stanford Law School, and I've worked um, particularly in the area of civil rights for the Department of Justice um, in our courts and uh, uh, 
Supreme Court watcher. And a lot of these important issues related to religious freedom are being decided by our nation's highest court. And thanks be to God, recently they've been decided in a very pro-religious freedom way. Right. And uh, we're just talking to somebody from First Liberty about the case that's going on in Maine where the uh, uh, students are not allowed to transfer to certain uh, religious schools uh, because they're religious schools. And that's been in the Supreme Court. It's going back up, it, it sounds like. Uh, I want to ask you oh, real goodness. quick. You, 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 you have that. Well, old cases never die, right? Um, I want to ask you real quick, uh, just as just an aside, you mentioned Stanford uh, uh, Law School. Uh, what's going on there right now? Yeah. No, that's a really great um, thing that you point out. My... I was there in the mid-90s, and for two of my three years there, I was the student body president. Um, and a Have they ripped your sign ago, down now, or your picture, you know? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, That's that person really me. wasn't no. with us. <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if your listeners may not be familiar, a couple of weeks ago, a sitting federal court judge, who's actually a friend of mine, um, Judge Kyle Duncan, who sits on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, he's a faithful Catholic father of five, and he was invited to give a talk by a student group, the Student Federalist Society, at, and um, to give a talk about the relationship between his Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court on a number of these important issues. Um, and when he got there, he was greeted by what I can only describe as a thuggery mob of students representing a portion of the student body. Um, they jeered at him. They shouted at him as he was entering in to give his talk. They interfered with his ability to give his talk. Um, and when he asked, rightly, for um, an administrator to come in and kind of settle the children down, this administrator who is identified as being a diversity dean of the school, um, added insult to injury and um, said that his position and his lifelong work uh, as a um, religious freedom advocate and while on the bench was offensive to her sensibilities. And so it's, it's taken a lot of time, unfortunately, for the university president and for the dean to denounce this behavior, that dean has been put on leave. Students are going through kind of re-education on the importance of robust debate and civility. Yeah, it just seems that everywhere we go and we have somebody who's a DEI coordinator or monitor or whatever, we run into trouble that we wouldn't normally have run into. Well, and I think some of this is a consequence of the shift from kind of old-school civil liberties that include the importance of robust and free speech to now progressive ideology. Yeah. And that's manifested itself in gender ideology, critical race theory, that doesn't allow for differences of opinion, and it particularly is aggressive towards religious belief and the truth that our Catholic Church offers in teachings about the human person, human sexuality, marriage, and the like. One of the things I've noticed is that uh, they like to use words that uh, will make everybody else feel good, like democracy, this is democracy, this is liberty, this is... And actually, what they're doing is just the opposite. 
No, I, I agree with you. And I actually have seen a shift away from discussions of democracy and freedom. And instead, what Pope Francis has said is ideological colonization. Right. Everyone needs to think a certain way. And that certain way that's being presented is against the truth. Yeah. So it's a very disconcerting time. Um, fortunately, like I mentioned before, at Stanford, there the ship is writing itself. Um, hopefully it will write itself quicker for the, the sake of the students who didn't join in those protests and for these students that will become leaders in the legal profession to really understand the value of um, listening to one another, being civil, and and being open to the truth in their own lives and in their own thinking. Yeah, with the loss of tolerance, we've seen that in the, uh, um, what is it, the Wall Street Journal poll that was just released, um, uh, uh, I guess this past week. Anyway, we digress here. We want to talk to you about something else, uh, although this is very interesting, and anytime you want to call us back for an hour conversation, we'll be happy to do that. But let's talk about this movement in, uh, I guess it's in Delaware, and in uh, Vermont uh, to really strip the uh, people of their right of uh, confidentiality in the confessional. We would call this the seal, they want to break the seal confession, civil law, they call it the priest penitent privilege, whatever you want to call it, there's an attack against it, and it should be raising a lot of warning signs. So you want to you want to tell us what you know about the legislation that's being promoted here and where it comes from and why? Well, that's a lot to begin with, but it's, it's important as, as the starting place is to understand that all 50 states in the District of Columbia do recognize that what goes on in the confessional is of a unique privilege and secrecy um, and that this has been historically protected um, in state laws uh, under what's called the priest penitent privilege. It's similar to what's recognized in the law for attorney-client privilege. Um, and every few years, a state legislator somewhere um, will present the idea of repealing these privileges in their state laws. Um, it was tried to be repealed a couple years ago in California, um, and and in Vermont and in Delaware, uh, some politicians looking to score political points have presented this idea in the case of child abuse that priests who are part of mandatory reporters, which is a good thing, right? We want teachers, pediatricians, anyone dealing with young people to, to work collaboratively with law enforcement with the exception or the exclusion of when things are revealed in the confessional. A move is about to repeal that in Vermont and Delaware. The Vermont legislation missed some important committee deadlines, so currently it's unable to go forward in, in this legislative year there. Um, and it missed those deadlines because people raised issues of religious freedom and said, what about the religious freedom implications of doing this? Um, the person that presented it in Vermont has said he's going to represent it next year. Um, but I think that there's a very good indication here that the general principle of religious freedom is still very strong in people's minds. Um, and I'd like to mention that I haven't seen any evidence presented that listing the seal of confession 
will help facilitate the investigation and prosecution of child abuse. Um, and that would be really important if you're trying to reach and surpass the legal burdens when, when religious freedom is involved. There's been no evidence, I think, in light of my understanding of of people's practices in the confession, it actually child abuse victims more vulnerable. Because we know when we go to confession, oftentimes that's our first step in making amends and changing our behavior. If the secrecy, the seal of secrecy is is lifted, people who are engaging in abuse may not go for that first initial step towards rectifying their behavior, confronting their sin, and instead the sinful action will be kept in the dark. I think a lot of people who want to attack uh, the priest-penitent relationship uh, don't really understand what confession is or really how it's carried out, because my guess would be that in majority of the cases, the priest does not know who is the penitent. They're confessing through a screen. No, you're absolutely right. As far as kind of the practical implications of this, um, given the anonymity that's often at play when when the confession is going on, um, it's not like a priest will know, you know, John Z just con- confessed to mm-hmm. child abuse, and I'm going to go and call call the, the local law enforcement authorities up. The other issue is priests are bound to respect the seal of confession under canon law. And so um, the leading churchmen in both Vermont and in Delaware testified that if you lift the seal, their priests are not going to break it voluntarily. And so they're going to fill the jail with priests because of, yes. Mm -hmm. And that they're at, you know, they're at pain of excommunication if they break the seal of confession. And And so they're not going to do that. Right. And that excommunication, if it comes, can only be lifted by His Holiness Himself. Absolutely. No other so bishop can instead do that. we're, well, and what we're setting our, our priests, our local diocese, and the Church up for is a situation of fines, potential, you know, incarceration, Vermont and Delaware, you know, civil fines. Um, but more importantly is the chilling effect that it will okay. have on the ability of people to go and take that important first step to change. I also want to mention that for many victims of abuse, especially domestic abuse, they think that they're to blame. And there have been many occasions in which they've brought the situation in the confessional and the priest has helped them understand that they should not be victimized and subjected to abuse and help them getting help. Um, And so in addition to not helping to facilitate an abuser to make change, we may keep victims in thinking wrongly that they deserve to be hurt. The um, only case that I remember recently involving the priest-penitent privilege uh, was in Louisiana about six, seven years ago, where a, and, and it brought up some really interesting questions. What it was is there was a girl that had been abused by one of the parishioners in this particular church, and when she went to confession, apparently she told the priest of this. Later, she and her family, she was a minor at the time, she grew out of that, of course, as the case went on, but uh, 
they sued the family of the uh, of the uh, person who she accused of perpetrating the violence on her, and he had died, and so it was the uh, the uh, estate of that person that they were suing. And anyway, they called the priest to testify because they wanted him to testify. And, of course, the, the diocese got involved and he didn't want to do it and blah, 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 blah. And I remember one of the first things that they argued was that, well, in this case, the penitent is waiving the privilege. But that's not the way it works. The penitent can't waive oh. that privilege. I can waive or I can the, my clients can waive attorney client privilege. So somebody comes in and gives me a gun and tells me where the body's buried, I can't say anything. But if they ultimately waive the privilege, I can testify. That's not so with a priest, because the church does not see the penitent as having the privilege. It's the church that has the privilege to hold that in confidence. No, you're absolutely right. The kind of the dual nature of this privilege um, Covering both the individual and the priest and the church and in in her autonomy to be able to administer the sacraments as she seems sees fit. That case was very interesting because it took some time for the state courts in Louisiana to get it right. But the last word was that the state supreme court in Louisiana recognized the privilege, um, and the priest in question said, "Look, I can't even." divulge whether or not we were in the confessional. That's how broad the the seal of confession governs my ability to speak on it. Um, there's also a case that I, I wanted to mention, and it was in the late 1990s um, in Oregon, where a priest was ministering to inmates, and his the confession that an inmate gave at a jail was secretly recorded by the jail officials and given to the district attorney. In that case, both the priest and the archbishop, who later became Cardinal Francis George, defiled suit in federal court demanding the destruction of the tape where the confession was was housed, saying this is a violation of the religious freedom protections um, under the law. And they won. And that's a really important precedent for moving forward, that this isn't just a protection that the individual priest has, but that the Church really has a protection over the governance of the sacraments. Um, Now, obviously, we don't want to just always be in a defensive position, especially when it comes to matters so weighty as child abuse. Um, And that's where, as Catholics, when we speak about protecting the seal of confession, we need to also, in the same breath, talk about the important work that the Church is doing to address and prevent child abuse, both by training of anyone that's dealing with young people, um, the special protections that are in place for when there are allegations of abuse, to make sure that there's an investigation, and when those are corroborated, to work with local law enforcement. So we need to say, look, child abuse is serious. And, and as Catholics, we do not stand for this sinful behavior, but it doesn't mean that we can also trample on religious freedom. It's, you know, we can't, we can't solve one problem by creating another. Right, and I think this is playing out in society right now where you see um, a private school, a parochial school, 
enrollments skyrocketing, uh, looking at what's going on in some of the public schools these days. They're trying, parents are trying to protect their children. You know, and, and I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that a child is probably safer within anything run by the Catholic Church in America today than any other entity in America. And, and it doesn't mean that abuse won't happen. I mean, the, the devil is active and prowling about. Um, but it does mean that we've, we've taken seriously our response to what has been terrible history of abuse and, and put in place using all the human means available to make sure that, that children are protected when they're in our care. Well said. Well said. Now, before... Oh, go ahead, go ahead oh, Gina. Go ahead. No, I just had a legal question about um, these laws in Vermont and Delaware or other states that may be introducing them. If they did become law, would the Catholic Church have standing to um, file suit against the state before, you know, you talked about being more proactive? Is there a way we can um, stay on top of it so that it never takes effect? You know, I think there is. And part of it is, in light of the fact that this is a law to repeal the priest-penitent privilege. It's not like it's a general law to get rid of all kinds of privileges. It's directed specifically at religion, which means that it's targeted at religion. And um, that kind of targeted legislation does raise huge implications, um, both for equal protection and anti-discrimination, as well as the free exercise of religion, and as I mentioned before, church autonomy. So I think that the, the dioceses uh, that are involved here have strong claims to make if these laws pass, um, and, and especially if there is any kind of enforcement action um, against a particular priest or a particular diocese. The, the more important thing is to continue to preserve our robust system of democracy. Catholics have a strong voice. And we need to make sure that the, the Catholic voice isn't just our churchmen and, and our priests, but that as faithful, we go and we talk to our elected officials, whether, you know, if we live in Delaware or Vermont, or if this is bubbling up in, in our own home states, we need to say, this is serious. It's got huge implications, not only for the administration of justice um, dealing with child abuse, but it's good for people to have faith, and attacking the inner workings of a church is both against our our great tradition of pluralism, but it's going to harm society and the common good if it goes through. Yeah, and I think it goes back, I did a little research, something like 1813, People versus Phillips, uh, where, this, where the court in New York held that... Uh, ordering a priest to testify violated the First Amendment of the Constitution. So it has a long history here, both in, in legislative history and in common law history. Absolutely. Now, I did want to ask you one little thing, not put you on the spot uh, before you go, uh, but something came across my desk yesterday about uh, Cardinal uh, Robert McElroy of the Diocese of San Diego has banned uh, EWTN from his diocese. Was there any response you know, from EWTN? I didn't hear any last night, and I. You know, I haven't. I'm I'm uh, 
kind of an analyst and friend of EWTN. Um, I'm not employed by the Eternal Word Television Network. I haven't heard anything as well. But I do think that the airwaves can't be blocked. So it's very important to think about the rich spiritual uh, supports that that network, as well as other Catholic radio and programs offer. That's right. We love the San Diego area. Mm-hmm. No, I love it. I totally, right? right. Um, and, and we should. The other thing is, um, you know, again, it's, I think it's very short-sighted. Um, I, I am very, a very faithful Catholic, and I steer clear of um, media platforms that are not faithful, to the magisterium, not faithful and respectful to the papacy. Um, that doesn't mean that as Catholics we should never question or point out inconsistencies or be concerned. We should always be praying um, for the unity and the communion of all Catholics and all Christians. Um, so I do think that it's it's a bad move on, on the cardinal's part. That I hope he'll he'll come to understand is not is not good for his flock. Um, and in the meantime, I would say that people need to continue to pray, pray for the Church in America in particular. These are difficult times that are dividing us. We know that, that the enemy loves to divide, um, and so we really do want to, to pray for union and communion in the Church um, and make sure that these interesting and important issues affecting the public square continue to have a Catholic voice. Um, I think that the, the Church offers a deep and rich tradition that can help guide us through as a nation. Very well said. Andrea Pacelli Byers, who is with uh, Legal Analysis with EWTN, thank you for joining us today, and uh, we hope to have you back. Uh, please do, and thanks for having me. Have thank a lovely you. rest of your day. You too. God bless. And Gene and I will be right back after these messages. And we are back. Well, you're listening to Faith on Toronto, Iowa Catholic Radio, still, if you've been with us for the full hour. Uh, Gina, we had an interesting program today, a couple interesting guests and interesting topics. Yes, uh, it's uh, Groundhog Day, isn't it, in Maine? Those poor Ma- people, <laughs> the legal counsels from First Liberty, uh, must feel like they wake up to the same story every morning. Every morning, yeah. And uh, uh, like I say, old cases don't die, and uh, this is in fairly old case or relatively old case as things go, and it's uh, found new life, and it will be interesting. And unfortunately, you know, this happens all the time. People who are opposed to religion in in society, uh, religious thought in society, or even conservative thought in society are always figuring out or trying to figure out another way they can silence the us, the enemy. And uh, it does not look like... uh, uh, these two, this state, Maine, is going to be able to uh, to do that. I think the the law is against them, and I think Leah laid that out pretty well. Well, and it sounds to me as long as that attorney general is in office, he will continue to um, attack the Catholic parochial schools, especially his favorite, Bangor Christian School. Yeah, yeah, you seem to go after them quite a bit. And then Andrea uh, uh, Pacelli Bears, uh, from uh, who's the analyst, legal analyst for EWTN. Um, interesting discussion we had with her. It was, of course, a lot off the topic that we got her here for, but it was very enlightening. Well, We're going to have to have her on someday and just say, "Okay, Andrea, go <laughs> tell us what you want well, to right, tell us." And, yeah. 
you know, there's no legal case currently with um, the uh, in um, what is it, Vermont and Delaware, right. as they produce these laws to um, open up the confessional. Um, it's, but what it often happens here on our programming, you know, two years from now, we're going to talk about well, just, a legal just like case the main case. Yeah, that. it's going to be back again. Exactly. All right. So uh, it's good to, good to get a preview. Yeah, I want to make a quick note here before we go. Um, last week we had on the program on the message of Fatima. Uh, what I think we kind of, we didn't miss, but I don't think a lot of people know, is that program is also podcast, so it can be heard anytime, as all of our programs are. So if you want to go back and listen to that program or think somebody that you know would like to listen to it, it's uh, go to iowacatholicradio.com to episode, or you can go to the, uh, the Faith on Trial page, and uh, it's uh, episode number 355 is what you're looking for, and you can find all sorts of other episodes there, uh, like uh, 351, where we were talking about the FBI and the Latin Mass, and then Father Tad Paholchek from the National Catholic Bioethics Center on transgenderism is on uh, something like uh, 348 or something like that. Today's program is 356, if you're looking for it, and it's about time, I think, that we go to uh, our prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke us, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Any comments or questions, you can send them to me at deaconmike at q.com. In the meantime, till next time, have a blessed and peaceful week. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, iowacatholicradio.com, and the Iowa Catholic Radio app.